0: Today we're in James 3 and we're talking about the walk and the title of today's sermon is freedom of speech and James writes this not many should become teachers my brothers because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many ways if anyone does not stumble in what he says he is mature able also to control the whole body now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies, and consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pirate direct, pilot, not pirate, the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze, a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It, it stains the whole body and sets the course of life on fire and is itself on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, and reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. It's the word of God. Freedom of speech. It's a topic right now, and it's really an amazing privilege that we have in the United States of America to say things that come to our mind or to speak out as we see fit. I have friends around the world that don't have that privilege. In fact, Some, I've written some things on my Facebook page about their country and they've contacted me and said, hey, can you take that down? Because if people in my country see what you wrote, I could get in trouble. Freedom of speech, we have an awesome opportunity in this country to just say what we want. And with things like Twitter and Facebook, the words are no longer just verbal, they're written. We see words everywhere. But I wanna tell you about a time that someone had freedom of speech and chose to restrict their speech. About 10, 15 years ago, I was in a church, and I loved the pastor. He uh, was a mentor to me, and he was really, really good with words. Like, when he would preach, it would just pierce through all those shields you put up that you don't want the Word of God to get into. He just found a way to say it so that it would get in. And his insights were incredible. But not only that, he was a wordsmith. So in the way he said, I can still remember things he said and phrases he used from 12, 13 years ago. He was incredibly talented with words. And one time when I had moved up to go to seminary and train to be a pastor, the seminary asked him to come up and teach a weekend class on Friday night and Saturday. And the the class was packed because everyone really liked this guy. And he was teaching on this topic, relationships in God's image. Like, what does it mean to see each other as an image bearer of God? And so the the class was packed. And Friday night, the conversation was lively. Everyone was enjoying him teaching. And we were just talking about what does it mean to see the image of God in each person? And then someone raised their hand and said, "Um, Pastor, what does this look like in the dating relationships? And, you know, there were people in the room who wanted to be married. There were people in the room who were married and they wanted to have a perspective of what it looks like in marriage. And we were all there with our journals open, ready to write whatever he said, word for word. And this pastor kind of looked down for a moment. He looked out in the room and saw that there were hearts longing for relationships, people that were single and they didn't want to be single, people that were married and struggling with their marriage. And all of us were there going, speak to us. You're free, man. Tell us. You're wise. You're going to say it in a creative way. Give us some wisdom. And he said, you know what? To be honest with you, I haven't really thought about it as much as I need to. So I'm not going to say anything tonight. I'm going to go back to my room and I'm going to pray for a bit. Why don't you pray for me tonight? That as I go back to my room, God would give me wisdom in order that I can say something to you tomorrow. My jaw about dropped and hit the floor because I wanted him to speak. You're free, man, say it. But as he looked out and he realized, you know what? I haven't really thought this through, and my words are powerful. My words can be dangerous, and I need to really reflect before I say anything. You see, he was free to speak, but he chose to restrict his speech. He chose to to keep it in and really reflect on what he wanted to say. And and that's the interesting thing about what James is getting at is we so often think about we're free to speak, but James almost turns it on its head and says, you need to be free not to speak. You need to be free to bite your tongue. James starts off by saying in verse one that not many of you should be teachers. And what James is getting at is that the role of teachers is primarily a public speaker. And when you're public speaking, words come out, that's my job, right? That's what I do, I'm supposed to speak publicly. But the more words that are spoken, the more chance of the words being dangerous and sinful. And so you guys can pray for me for mercy that God would really shape me and that God would have mercy on me. But James is telling us that words, when they're many, they can be dangerous. But he's saying something even deeper. Because so often we talk about controlling the tongue, controlling our words, being in power over what we say. But James is saying, actually, the tongue is in control of you. The tongue is in control of you. He says, look, if anyone has control of their tongue, they're mature. Not only mature, but they're perfect. In other words, if someone controls all the words that come out of their mouth, they're in control of every other part of their body. And I don't know anyone like that. I don't know that anyone that has total control over their tongue. And the reason is, is because the tongue itself has control issues with you. Your tongue has control issues. It wants to say what it wants to say. In verse three and four, James talks about our tongue being like the bit in a horse's mouth that guides the horse or the rudder that guides a ship. A few weeks ago, my friend asked me to go out on his boat. And we went out and we went out, there was like no other boats out because it was really rough. We probably should not have been out there. But he said, like, he said do you wanna drive the boat? And I was like a dummy. I was like, sure, I'll, yeah, I, I can handle this. But, but as we went over those waves, I was still amazed that just by a little turn of the steering wheel, the rudder would move and it would power that ship through those massive waves. In the same way, your tongue controls where you go. Your tongue controls where you go. But in verse 5 and 6, here's the issue. Your tongue is the boss. It's like El Jefe, but it's not a good boss. It is broken, and it is fallen, and it is sinful. In fact, James calls it a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness. Douglas Moo says this, the tongue, or, the tongue can determine the destiny of Of an individual. In other words, the tongue controls you, and it's kind of like a crazy man is in control. And it drives you to places, it determines your destiny. We talk about controlling the tongue, but the tongue is in control of you. It stains the whole body, it says in verse 6, it sets the course of life on fire. In other words, it spreads and scorches. And I mean, think about that with fake news. How much damage has fake news done in our society? Well, for me, I don't even really believe anything anymore that I read on the internet. I'm like, I don't even know how to verify if this actually happened or if there's an agenda behind it. And the tongue is the same way. The tongue and words, they set the course of life on fire. I remember the first time I learned this lesson, I was in the first grade. And we were out on the playground, and, and when I was in first grade, the first graders, the second graders, and the third graders all played today, or played together. And this third grader, you know, big kid, third grader, he's like, hey man, do you see that building over there? And I was like, yeah, and he goes, it's full of skeletons. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And this rumor started to grow among the first graders and the second graders and we were out there debating it. Could this be true? And I was like, he's a third grader. He knows what he's talking about. We gotta trust him, this guy's legit. But that rumor spread like wildfire through the first, second, and third grade. And then after recess, we went back uh, into our classroom and and about half an hour later, some teacher dragged the kid in by the ear to apologize to every class because he had spread this rumor about a building full of skeletons. But it set the the first, second, and third grade on fire. Not only that, but it says the tongue is set on fire by hell. Set on fire by hell. You know, if you think about when God created the world, the only words that were spoken before man fell were words of life and words of love until Satan came and said words of lies. Lies, deception, deceiving Adam and Eve, getting them to eat the fruit. And then once that happened, Adam and Eve start lying. In their shame, they start blaming one another with their words. And our tongue is influenced by hell. It's influenced by the work of the enemy. And that first, those first words that, that were told in deception, they, they weren't without consequence. That led to the very downfall of man and our separation from God. Words are incredibly powerful. And here's the thing, we must learn to tame our tongue, but James tells us the tongue cannot be tamed. It can't be tamed. You can tame a bunch of different animals, but you can't tame your tongue. A ministry that that has influenced me a lot, World Harvest Mission, now called Surge, they do this discipleship program. And part of the early stages of the discipleship program is they do this thing called the tongue exercise and they take everyone in the program and they say, here's your mission, here's your homework for this week. Go home and be honest with yourself, but look at what words come out of your mouth. Are they critical of others? Are they words that deny when you do something wrong? Are they words that tell white lies or even big lies? Are they self-justifying? Are they gossip? And go home and notice what actually comes out of your mouth, but then also notice what comes up to your mouth that you still bite your tongue. And they sent everybody home and they all came back the next week and the teacher said, how'd you guys do? And everyone's like, man, it was right there, gossip. It it was right there, self-justifying behavior. It was there, white lies and lies. And then one guy said, not me. I didn't didn't do anything like that. Nothing came out of my mouth like that. And, And the teacher said, how did you do it? And the guy said, I took a vow of silence all week. There really is no way to tame the tongue unless we don't talk at all. The tongue cannot be tamed. But here's the thing, it must be tamed. James says in verse seven and eight that it's, it's deadly, it's poison. If you had a vial of poison in your pocket, you would be constantly aware of it. You wouldn't want to bump it so it would break. If you took it out, you'd want to know where it was so no one else picked it up and drank it. It's the same way with the tongue. It's deadly, it's poisonous. So we have to tame the tongue, but we find we can't tame the tongue. It's incredibly destructive. And it reveals some deeper failures in our own life. Not just the failures of the tongue, but there's something that it's connected to that reveals that there's failures deeper in who we are. In Genesis 1, if you can put Genesis 1 up, when God creates man, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Every person is created with God-given dignity. They reflect the image of God. And therefore, every person is valuable. Every person is worthy of respect and dignity and honor. And yet, James, and and if this is true, what uh, Mike Mason says is also really powerful. If you could put up that quote for me. Mike Mason says, if man really is fashioned more than anything else in the image of God, then clearly it follows that there is nothing on earth so near to God as a human being, I mean, think about that. When you're looking into the eyes of another person, you're looking into someone who's made in the image of God. The conclusion is inescapable that to be in the presence of even the meanest, lowest, most repulsive specimen of humanity of the world is still to be closer to God than when looking up into a starry sky or at a beautiful sunset. Certainly, that is why there is nothing in the New Testament about beautiful sunsets. Every person made in the image of God. And yet, we deny each other's dignity with our words. In verse 9 and 10, it says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. When we criticize, and when we curse, and when we use our words to destroy, we are denying that someone is made in the image of God. See, our tongue reveals deeper failures. It it reveals that we tend to define people by their sin rather than the fact that they're created in God's image. And yet I know when I sin, I want to pass, right? I'm a respectable person. God has created me. I don't define myself by my sin, but I sure will define you by your sin. But when our tongue speaks words of negativity about other people, it reveals that we really don't see the image of God in each other. But not only that, it reveals that we see ourselves as God's replacement. We see ourselves as God's replacement. In verse uh, 11 and 12 of the next chapter, it says this, "'Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law.'" If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Judge, and when we criticize each other, it reveals that we think we are in the place of God. God's standards aren't as good as my standards, so I'm going to evaluate you by my standards rather than by God's standards. See, our tongue reveals not only that we miss the image of God in each other, but that we think we're in the place of God. We think we're in the place of God. And these tongue issues that we all have, they reveal a deep brokenness in our own heart. The tongue issues show heart issues. Each of us has a deep heart issue. We could try and tie our tongue, but we couldn't stop what flows up out of our hearts to our mouths. In verse 11 and 12, James talks about the, the spring, a spring welling up, and it doesn't make sense that sweet and bitter water could come from the same place, and a fig tree couldn't produce olives, and a vine can't produce figs, and he's talking about this idea of both honoring God and yet missing the dignity in each person. And yet that happens, that's, that's us. That flows up out of our hearts, it bubbles up. It's because our hearts are full of envy, and selfish ambition. In verse 14, it talks about envy. And envy is this jealousy over your blessings. When I'm jealous over your blessings, like God's been better to you than he has been to me. And then I envy you. And I miss what God has done in my own life because I want what he's done in your life. That's envy. And our heart is really this black hole when we're envious. It's just, it can't see goodness or grace or or gifts anywhere because I just want what you have. And I just want to suck it towards me. Studies have shown that people who struggle with envy also struggle with depression and neuroticism because it's so difficult to live a life of envy. It's not fun at all. It destroys you. And yet we're all there. You know, as we look at social media, someone called it, it's not social media, it's social comparison. Right. Every morning you wake up and you roll over and you're like, "Okay, what's going on on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter?" And every every morning and every afternoon and every evening, you have this opportunity. Your heart—you can't help it. It's comparing yourself to others. And people say, "Well, I don't struggle that with that." I don't believe you. I don't believe you because we all struggle with comparing ourselves to each other, and our hearts struggle with envy. But not only that, selfish ambition talks about selfish ambition, which is a deep desire to promote yourself. A deep desire that comes from your heart to promote yourself. We live in a culture that loves selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is sort of the temperature of our culture. There was a study done that looked at the top 100 billboard songs over the last uh, two decades, starting in 1990 and then again in 2000, and then again in 2010. And what they found is from 1990 to 2010, the nature of songs has changed. They've become more narcissistic. The people singing the songs are talking more about themselves by name in 2010 than they were in 1990. They're talking more about self-promotion. They're bragging about their wealth. They're bragging about their sexual prowess. They're bragging about their partner and how good they look. And they're bragging about their musical skills. We're like frogs in the pan with the temperature being turned up slowly on selfish ambition and narcissism. But it's just the culture we live in. It's the culture that we live in. And it's really shaping us. It really is shaping us. And it's becoming the norm. Brian Robbins, who um, he does YouTube channels for teenagers and, and teens. And he did an interview with the New Yorker and said, Listen, when I speak to kids, the number one thing they want is to be famous, but they have no idea what they wanna be famous for. They just wanna be famous. It's the culture that we live in and it's shaping us. And you might say, look, it's cool, John, talking about musicians and uh, teenagers, and maybe they're a little more self-centered than I am. Uh, But really, All of us are deeply self-centered. There was an article that came out in the New York Times Magazine written by a guy named Andrew Churlin. And the article was titled, I'm okay, you're selfish. (laughs) I'm okay, you're selfish. And they they talked about a poll where they polled people and said, how many of you are overly concerned with yourself? And only 17% of people said, I'm overly concerned with myself, 17 out of 100. But then they said, well, what about other people? you think other people are overly concerned with themselves? And 60% of people said, yeah, most people out there are overly concerned with themselves. I'm okay, but you're selfish. But Churling goes on to write, he says, you know, I think what's actually happening is people know that they're selfish. They know they struggle with selfish ambition and they're anxious about it. So they project their anxiety on other people. They project their anxiety on other people they interviewed in this article, they interviewed a student, 21 year old Rachel Davis. And she said this, most people are selfish. If they're volunteering, they're doing it to clean up the resume. So they're doing good things for selfish reasons, not because they really want to help. But then she paused and kind of got honest and said, sometimes I'm overly concerned with myself. I just think it's a me, me world. Everything is focused on what you can accomplish, what you can do and how far you can go. What can I accomplish? What can I do? How far can I go? I'm okay, you're selfish. But if we get honest with ourselves, really all of us struggle with this selfish ambition. And the reason we see selfish ambition in other people's is because we know what it looks like in ourselves and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. James writes in verse 16, though, that where envy and selfish ambition exist, you will see disorder in every evil practice. Imagine every person in the world who's constantly committed to looking out for number one. That's actually the world we live in. That's actually the world we live in. Now, there are times when we serve other people out of pure motives and and sometimes when we do good and still have selfish motives, But we live in a world where we are deeply broken and our hearts are full of envy and selfish ambition. But God's view, in verse 15, God tells us his view of what the world looks like. And he says this, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. In other words, a world full of people living for me is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's actually not a world free, It's a world enslaved. It's a world enslaved to self because it's human without the influence of God. It's a world full of self-promotion and self-preservation rather than sacrificial love. Rather than sacrificial love, rather than giving of peace, rather than righteousness and joy, self-promotion and self-preservation are not sacrificial love. And the thing is, is that God's normal is self-giving love. God's normal is all about love. That's what heaven is all about. It's a place of eternal love. And yet we're stuck here in this culture that is all about number one and with hearts that scream out, me. But God's normal, the way of heaven is about love. In verse 17, it says that it, it is pure. In other words, God's way is not mixed. There's no ulterior motives. There's no mixing of good and bad. God's way is pure, but it's also peace-loving. Now that's not peace-faking. That means peace-making. In other words, God's way is about making peace at great cost to himself. But God's way is also gentle. That's not meaning he's a pushover. It means that it's in strength he is gentle. But God's way is also compliant. Now, that doesn't mean that other people run over you, but it means that you are open-minded. You don't always have to win. You know anyone that always has to win? They're not compliant. They're not open-minded. But also that God's way is about mercy. And this really hits home with our words, because how often do we use our words to get back just a little revenge rather than mercy? God's way, the wisdom from above is full of good fruit. It's unwavering, meaning it doesn't quit even in the midst of challenges. It continues to love. And it's without pretense. There's no mixed motives. This is God's way above. And yet God's normal is so different than our normal and so different than our culture and so different than our hearts. The good news for us, though, is that God sent his son, Jesus, the king of heaven, into this world, Jesus, the wisdom of God, the word of God, the love of God, into this broken, messed up world full of selfishness and envy and selfish ambition. He sent him to die for our sins. And in Jesus coming, we see God's radical self-giving love. His radical self-giving love. See, God looks at our world and he sees the way that we use the words and we the way in the state of our hearts. And because he's righteous, he must separate himself because he does not use words that way. And because he's just, he must judge us. But yet, although God looks, God still loves in his great mercy and love towards us. He sends his son, Jesus, the word of God, to come near To us, the second person of the Trinity. And when Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life. He always says what's supposed to be said, he always speaks out of love. And all the motives of his heart are to love his neighbor and to love God. But Jesus was put on the cross, and when he was put on the cross, he was judged for you and I and separated from God. The Father turned his back on him so that in Jesus' rejection, you and I could be accepted our wild tongues and our crazy hearts and all. We were restored to God and had peace with God. And Jesus' death, our old self dies. And in Jesus' resurrection, we are raised to new life, a new way of living, the Jesus way of living, the Jesus way of using our words. And it's not a lifestyle of me, it's a lifestyle of free. I'm free from my past self. I'm free from using words to destroy you. I don't have to look out for myself all the time because in Christ Jesus, I have been loved by God and God will take care of me. I don't need to have selfish ambition. I need to have Christ ambition because he is so glorious and loving. I want everyone else to know who he is. And that radically changes us and it's something so different that the world has not seen. In 2012, a Spanish runner named Ivan Fernandez Anaya was running in a race, and he was a good runner, and he was coming to the end of the race, and he was in second place. And the first place runner was way ahead of him, so there was no chance that he was going to catch the first place runner. He was going to end the race in second place, a respectable finish. But what happened was the first place runner, a Kenyan man named Abel Mutai, came into the finishing stretch as well, and he mistook Something finish line. He thought he had crossed the finish line, but he didn't. He still had a ways to go. And he began to slow down and walk. And as Mutai slowed down and walked, Fernandez Anaya caught him. He caught up to him. And it was an opportunity, man. Here, this is your fault. I'm going to cross that finish line and I'm going to get number one. But instead of blazing past Muna, uh, Mutai, Fernandez Aya, he slowed down and he put his hand on his competitor. And I don't think they could speak the same language, so he just gestured him forward. You're not at the finish line yet, go. You've rightfully won the race and I'm gonna get number two. And they crossed the finish line with Muay first and Fernandez and Aya second. And they interviewed Fernandez and I, and probably even more interesting than his gesture was the words he said, because it was an awesome opportunity to say, I'm a great guy, I'm an awesome guy, you know, I could have won that, but I didn't. And, uh, you know, so here come the interviews. But he said this, he said, no, Mutai, he was the rightful winner. He was the rifle winner. He created a gap that I could not have closed if he hadn't made a mistake. As soon as I saw he was stopping, I knew I wasn't going to pass him. Even if they had told me that winning would have earned me a place in the Spanish team for the European Championships, I wouldn't pass him them either. The reporter pressed further and he said, Honestly, I'm just so tired of all the selfish ambition and the envy that goes on in the sports world. And I just wanted to do something different. I wanted to put something different on display for the world to see. One incident like that. I don't know if this man was a Christian. One incident like that, and there's articles and everyone's going, this is crazy. What happened if we allowed our our hearts to be changed by heaven and live this way as a lifestyle in our city? Not out of selfish ambition or envy, not using our words to destroy, but a heart that's been calmed by the love of God and the peace of God, that we might use our words, not for me, but to set other people free, to bless them, to bring peace, to put something on display that the world has not seen. In verse 13 and 18, and we'll end this. this, James talks about your conduct, your lifestyle, your walk, your walk. As your hearts have been transformed by heaven, as you have been changed by the good news of Jesus, as your heart has soaked up the peace and love of God that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection, and as you soak up the love of God, your walk changes. As you are made by the peace of God, you become a peacemaker with your words. Hearts at peace speak peace, and hearts freed to use words, not for self, but for the benefit of. Of others so that we can fill our city with words and deeds that are not about us, that are not about me, that are not about putting you down so I can get ahead, but about the love and peace of God. And as we go forth in peace, James tells us that peace spreads. It's like a garden that grows and people say, I don't know what's different what's about them, but they're different. They don't They have opportunities to get ahead and instead of pushing me down, they take me with them. Instead of destroying me when I mess up, they forgive me and, and keep my secrets a secret. Instead of gossiping about me behind, behind my back, they love me. People of God, this is our calling. And even though our hearts are turned and broken and they affect our tongue, by absorbing the love of God in Jesus Christ, we are changed and we could be people who speak love and peace into the brokenness of our city. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would continue to transform us and make us into people who are more like Christ. Forgive us for our envy. Forgive us for our selfish ambition. Only a heart that absorbs the goodness of God in Jesus Christ can be changed. And we need that even more today. And so we pray that you would change us and you would change our words and you would change us uh, into the way of heaven. In your name we pray, amen. Stand with me now to sing.